Welcome to Jaffa's Space, a podcast about the world of Jewish outdoor food, farming, and environmental education, or as we like to call it, Jaffe. In this four-part series with Rabbi Yedidya Sinclair, we explore connections between Talmudic teachings and our current climate crisis. Time to coincide with Sukkot, Rabbi Sinclair takes us on an incredible journey through ancient Jewish wisdom with modern implications. This series is sponsored by the Hazon dance troupe, the Lulav Shakers. Returning from their virtual world tour, we are thrilled to be channeling their energy through today's podcast. Feel free to grab your finest etrog and join us in congratulating the team as each shake brings them closer to God. For this series, we'd like to offer some framing. Sukkot ends each year with a prayer for rain. Talmud Tractate, Ta'anit, begins by asking what happens and what we should do if the rain doesn't come. The acute crisis of COVID-19 against the backdrop of the creeping challenge of a warming climate are shaking our sense of invulnerability to the natural world. And they are challenging our society's capacities to effectively respond. We need deeper sources of wisdom to orient ourselves to these challenges. Jewish wisdom about coping with a climactic crisis and plague is distilled in Tractate Ta'anit, which addresses how we should respond when a change in the weather threatens our lives and livelihoods. As different as our reality is from the Talmuds, both the rabbis and contemporary environmentalists converge on the view that dangerous disruption to the weather requires a response that touches our lifestyles, behaviors, and spiritual consciousness. In these four consecutive lectures, Rabbi Yadija Sinclair argues that people respond to existential danger from the weather through shifts in behavior and consciousness that reverberate across the divide, separating pre-modern and post-modern awareness. Through exploring these places of mutual resonance between the Talmud's world and our own, we will frame a new old theology of climate change that offers hope to overcome this critical challenge. We will now begin part four of our conversation with Rabbi Sinclair. So sit back, grab a cup of tea, and join us. Um, Give it another 20 seconds. And Hannah, will you just check if the, the environmental racism room actually closed? Do we know if it's still open? Yeah, I'm chatting with the tech people now and they're making sure that nobody's in the other rooms. Okay, let's open it. Liana, I clicked the button. So I want to say hello and welcome. Happy Sukkot. My name is Nigel Savage, I'm CEO of Chazon. And in this session, literally right now, I particularly want to welcome two streams of people who are now coming together. There are people who have been at one or more of the three lectures that Rabbi Yudiju Sinclair has given over the last three days and of which today is the fourth and culminating lecture. And I also want to welcome people who have been part of Kazan Seal of Sustainability Summit, which began this morning with Neshama Kalbach. Um, the sessions that I went to were 
really genuinely two strong and provocative sessions, one on, 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 on not eating meat, eating less meat in Jewish institutions, and one on environmental racism. So um, whether you've been here with us in either or both of those things, or whether you're joining for the first time, want to say welcome. The heart of both these lectures and of the Chazon Silo Sustainability Summit is this springboard moment between Jewish life and tradition and the world around us and the future of the world and what it means to be Jewish. A big chunk of what is required of us requires action. It needs essentially to do things. But whatever actions we participate in, who we are, is ultimately informed by what we understand, including what we understand it means to be Jewish and what our understandings are of being Jewish and for that matter being human in relationship to the future of the world. And so that's the contact for these four lectures from Rabbi Sinclair, who is going really deeply into Jewish tradition in order to really ask what is distinct about Jewish tradition in relationship to the climate crisis, what is or can or should be a Jewish mythology or a Jewish frame in relationship to the challenges that we face. So thank you so much for joining us, and I'm so happy to hand over to Rabbi Sinclair coming to us live from Jerusalem. Indeed, you're, you're up. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, hello, everybody from Jerusalem. I just want to thank uh, you again, for Nigel, for your introduction, but also for making this, this all happen. I want to really thank uh, Liana and Hannah from Chazon for all their help. Um, I want to thank uh, Yaffa and all my family for making it possible for me to do this series. Uh, not so simple with everybody at home uh, over Sukkot, and I really want to thank them for their help and support. <coughs> uh, excuse me. So, uh, so as Nigel said, this series is the last in a series about um, about really you know what does Jewish tradition have to say which is unique unique about the climate crisis and I've been talking about this book Tractate Tani of the you, uh, you did yeah just one thing you need to move your camera because we can only see sort of the middle of your face and up okay Beautiful. that's no, better no you 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 wrecked it again you now okay you're... that that was better there are you there okay there you go perfect how's that excellent okay yes so I've been <laughs> I've been talking about this book, Tractate Tanit of the Babylonian Talmud, which is about what happens when there was a climate change in uh, in in crisis in the land of Israel, uh, you know, 1,500, 2,000 years ago. And, and what I've been trying to show this week is that you know as long ago that that was, and as far away as that is for for many of us, it still has remarkably pertinent things to teach us today about what we're facing today. So, so, so in this final class, I want to explain and justify the bold assertion I made on Monday that Tractate Ta'anit can provide us with a better theology and mythology of climate change. Now, it might not be at all obvious that we either have or need a theology or mythology of climate change, which is after all a scientifically observable problem with technological solutions, bureaucratic solutions, behavioral trained solutions. What does myth and theology have to do with it?
Okay. I think I'm unmuted now. Yep. Yes, you are. You went silent for a moment. You're back and welcome back. Good. Thank you. Nice to be back. So I would argue, however, that there is a palpable religious dimension to many of the debates we have about climate change. You know, confronted by this huge problem, which in the worst projected cases, heaven forbid, threatens the continu continuation of, of human life, Shalonida, people reach instinctively, I think, for millennial myths and metaphors about wholesale destruction and the end of the world. Now, this is the grain of truth in the crude insult that you sometimes hear from climate change deniers who say things like, and you've probably heard it, belief in climate change has become a kind of a substitute religion. Like, look, they'll say, you know, you've got your idea of sin, extravagant consumer, fossil fuel-based lifestyles, you've got punishment, you know, what's happening to the climate. We've got apocalypse. If we go on like this, that's what's going to happen. We've got expiation of sin by adopting hair-shaped ascetic lifestyle. Bingo, it looks like a religion. It walks like a religion. It's a religion, as if to associate climate change with religion is somehow automatically to discredit it as foolish, bogus, and imaginary. But I'd like to turn that intended insult on its head and say, well, duh, of course, guys. I mean, the scientific facts about climate change and the predictions about where it could lead and what it means for the future of life legitimately arouse questions and fears about our place in the world that have traditionally been the territory of myth and religion. It's understandable, even inevitable maybe, that humans would both consciously and unconsciously attach mythical and religious dimensions to climate change. But the question then is, well, which mythical meanings? And do we do that reflexively and unconsciously, or can we bring those myths to consciousness? And are the ones that we have actually helping us, or do we need better ones? And indeed, can we choose the myth, with myth that we use, or are we chosen by them? Now, myth might be described as the deep structuring narratives of human experience and their primary source is in the great religious traditions. I, they are, and I love this quote, the music that we dance to even when we cannot name the tune. As Bill Moyers put it, summing up the work of the great 20th century mythology scholar, Joseph Campbell. Meaning, I think, even if we aren't aware of the myths that we're living by and which are shaping our experience that we're dancing to, they're still there. They're the music playing in the background of our lives and influencing the dance steps we take. I just want to make clear when I say myth, I don't mean things which are not true, as in like mythical animals. I mean things which are true at a deeper level. And also, I'm not saying that our response to climate change should be based on cultural or religious myths, or that myth is a substitute for science, evidence, or a clear-eyed view of reality. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that it underlines and shapes the way that we see these things. So, yeah, if we look at widely held views about climate change in the Western world, sometimes these things are, are obvious and explicit. <coughs> you know, for example, you know, there is a vocal minority held by some evangelical Christians in the US. It's quite upfront about the fact that, well, they think that climate change probably isn't happening, but if it is, bring it on because it's hastening the final apocalypse. There are really people who say that. I've met a few of them. They have their websites, they have their YouTube videos. I don't think that's a helpful mythology of climate change. But what I find much more interesting 
is even secular thinkers, environmental thinkers, who are sometimes explicit about the religiously inspired myths shaping their understanding. So this is strikingly evident in the works of two very important British writers on climate change, George Monbiot, who writes for The Guardian, and Mark Linus, who wrote a book called Six Degrees, describing what the world would look like if with one, two, three, four, five, six degrees of, of, of warming. It's a book that prefigures Benjamin Wallace Wells', Wells recent uh, bestseller, The Uninhabitable Earth, which basically takes the same approach. But what's so interesting to me is that Monbiot and Linus both use medieval reworkings of medieval Christian myths of hell hellfire and eternal damnation to give a kind of moral urgency to their writings. So, so Linus in his book Six Degrees quotes liberally from Dante, the great you know, medieval Italian poet's guided tour of hell in his great work Inferno to describe what up to six degrees centigrade of global warming would mean. While George Monbiot spins an allegory about climate change from Christopher Marlowe's great 16th century play, Dr. Faustus. Remember the story, Dr. Faustus sells his soul to Mephistopheles the devil in exchange for earthly delights here and now and then pays the ultimate price of his immortal soul. So Monbiot says, quote, Faustus is humankind, restless, curious, unsated. Mephistopheles is fossil, is fossil fuel. Faust's miraculous abilities are the activities that fossil fuel has permitted. And the flames of hell, well, I think you've worked that out for yourself." Unquote. Yes, I think it's not too difficult to work it out. In Monbiot's homily, the flames of hell are a scorched, uninhabitable earth, which are the preordained punishment for human hubris. Even for these thoroughly secular writers, tropes of burning for all eternity are irresistibly handy to gesture at the enormity of the consequences of climate change. I would suggest that this is not just a couple of examples here and there, that actually it's quite a widespread way of thinking, speaking and writing about climate change. Think, for example, how many times you've heard the phrase climate, uh, climate apocalypse. I must have heard or seen that written hundreds of times. Now, apocalypse actually means something that's hidden, which is to be revealed comes from the Greek word to mean uncovered. And in religious writings, it refers to the revelation of a vision of preordained, as preordained truth, which is being now re revealed to believers about what's actually going to happen. The most famous religious accounts of an apocalypse is the book of Revelations, the final book of the Christian scriptures and a vision of horrific destruction, destruction, which some say refers to the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, but some say refers to the complete and final destruction of the world in preparation for the second coming and the new Jerusalem. Now you may have seen last year, Jonathan Franzen, the novelist, wrote a piece in the New Yorker entitled, quote, when will we stop pretending? The climate apocalypse is coming. To prepare for it, we need to admit that we can't prevent it. And he goes on to argue basically, the climate apocalypse and the complete breakdown of civilization is a done deal. And that any, everybody under 60, and definitely anybody under 30, will see the chaotic ca collapse of civilization. Now, Francis' article was actually widely criticized, including by scientists who argue that it's not true that we can't avoid the worst of climate change, and that if we do what we need to do now, we could still avoid the worst. But what I want to point out is that if you're calling it an apocalypse, as, as, as Francis says, 
part of what that means is it's something preordained and something that does not end well. Right? And, and Franson's a great writer and an influential cultural voice and thinks very carefully about the words he uses. And by calling it that and evoking the mythical meanings of that work, I think it cannot but affect the way that someone like Franson thinks about the inevitably inevitability or otherwise of disastrous climate change. So I realize this is very broad brush, brush stuff and I don't mean to set up straw men, but I really think that there's something here. And you know, one of these days I'm gonna write the scholarly version of this and there'll be lots of learned footnotes and citations, but no time for that right now. I'd wanna put this idea out there because I think there's something in it. So I'd question whether these myths are actually helpful ones for structuring and giving meaning to our experience of climate change. I think rather than inspiring the action we need to take, it seems to me that they elicit as, as Per, uh, as in, I think, Franson's article, paralysis, denial, fatalism, and despair. Today, I think we will be better served by the mythology and a theology of climate change that does not end in doom and disaster, hellfire and damnation, but rather one that facing up to the dire facts and dire they are, is also open to possibility, to human empowerment, to creativity, responsibility, freedom, and to our interconnectedness with all of creation. And I want to suggest that Tartractic Tani can provide us with some resources for a better mythology of climate change. I want to draw on three and perhaps four central ideas here. The first one is the question of living in a world of possibility. What do you take as being the basic reality of the world? Is the world we're living in essentially one of scarcity or of abundance? Now, I suggest there's no empirical way of, of answering that question. It's a question of one's essential orientation. Well, you know, basically a, a question of myth. You know, the Greek myth of cornucopia, of the horn of plenty. There's, you know, there's always going to be enough and more and whatever, as much as we ever need. You know, but environmentally speaking, that often doesn't seem to be the case. I suggest that this question of our, whether our basic reality is one of scarcity or plenty is in play throughout the opening pages of, of Talmud Ta'anit. You know, the very notion of praying for rain in response to a drought implies that there is a source of blessing, an abundance that exists outside the natural order of the world. Now pages 5a and 5b in Ta'anit make this theme explicit by discussing not how we respond to scarcity, but what is the essential consciousness that it conditions our response. So, so look at, briefly at the first source. You know, the Talmud asks, the Mishnah asks, at what point in the spring do we stop asking for rain in our prayers? And this question I suggest is really, the question is where do we set the limits of our faith that faith may yet come? Now the discussion of this follows a kind of a stylized form. You know, we have, and we, I've just included the very first bit of the discussion, seven times Rav Nachman asks a question of Rav Yitzchak, who answers in each case by citing a statement of Rabbi Yochanan, and you can see that how the first part of the discussion unfolds. So Rav Nachman, a rabbi from Babylonia, questions a biblical verse that seems to defy rational literalist understanding, and Rav Yitzhak, who's from Israel, replies in the name of his teacher, Rabbi Yochanan, to answer, in effect, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy, Rav Nachman. The bounds of space and time 
are elastic beyond what you could imagine in, to bring down blessing into the world. This awareness, I think, is an essential part of the consciousness that the Talmud aims to build as a precondition for asking for what we need. The page describes the dangers of a petition that is bounded by limiting the powers and resources that one way may ascribe to the one from whom we ask. So Rav Nachman says, well, how do you know, what do you mean that the Yore rain the earth can fall in the spring? Right? Yore normally means the early rain. Surely we know that it comes in the fall. To which Rav Nachman answers with this whole midrash about what took place in the names in the days of the prophet Joel. After a winter of harsh drought in which locusts laid waste whatever grew, the people were on the verge of starvation. At the dawn of the spring month of Nisan, with the end of the rainy season in sight, Joel urged all who had saved up scraps and cut cuttings of wheat or barley in the cracks and crevices in their homes not to eat those meager supplies, but instead to plant them in the ground. Suicidal, you might think. With no rain in sight, the grain would just rot and go to waste. Still, the people did as what was told them, what was told them, and miraculously, the Yore early rains came in the spring and crops, which normally took six months to grow from seeding to reaping, sprouted in the space of mere 11 days. So an undying faith in the future led the people <coughs> to invest their last shreds of hope, uh, shreds of food, and was rewarded with this improbable abundance. And the, and the story goes on, the, the sugya goes on in the same, in the same vein. Now, to say that there is in, in infinite abundance in potential is not to say that this is what the world looks like. And it's certainly not to say either that therefore we should squander what we have and spend, spend and use and consume like there's no tomorrow. Um, you know, this question about do we live in a world of, 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 of plenty or of scarcity is, is very much, I think, at the heart of different approaches to climate change. The environmental scientist Peter Gleek distinguishes between what he calls Malthusians and Cornucopians. Now, the Malthusians, drawing on arguments that go back to Thomas Malthus in 1798, say that population growth will eventually, will eventually going to hit the wall of resources and we just can't go on growing and expanding forever. The Cornucopians, with their nod to the horn of plenty of mythology, people like, say, Bjorn Lomborg or most more recently Michael Schellenberger, Hold say that technological advances can sustain societal needs and that unbounded growth and increased population are just positive good things. There's going to be more and more good news. Now, I think that this kind of naive techno optimism is, is, is dangerous because ultimately it just relies on the faith that because we found, you know, found we've technological answers to our problems in the past, we'll just carry on doing that so in the future, which is yeah, just an article of religious faith, I think, is just as mythical. It's all right until one day we don't, and then we're in trouble. But I would, you know, I would call myself a, uh, a cautious techno-optimist. I mean, you know, I think, you know, I live, in, I live and work in the world of renewable energy and clean technology in Israel. And there's a, you know, it's a very optimistic world. You know, people think, you know, we're finding solutions you know, we brought down the price of solar for by 90% in the last uh, in the last 10 years. You know, we can do what it takes. I think maybe up to a point. I think there is a there is a, a need also for change in values. There's also a need for you know, for a change in, in in habits and consumption. 
I don't want to say there's a straight line between this kind of optimism and the Talmud's per, uh, perception, what I'm claiming here, of a world of infinite potential, in, uh, of infinite abundance in potential, but, but I do draw some support from it. I don't want to say you, know, you can infer it directly, but I think it's the same spirit. I'll leave it at that. You know, I'd love to, you can look afterwards with the beautiful and well-known story, you know, tree, tree, how shall I bless you? And, and the blessing that he gives it to the man who has everything to Rav Nachman is, you know, what do I bless you with? You have children, you have witches, you have Torah. I bless you that your seed should be like you. you know, what, what, this, what this, this, this conclusion to the, uh, to the story, story is telling us is that you know, in, in response to a world, in a world where there, there is this blessing and potential, you know, what, do you, what do you bless someone with who doesn't need anything, who has all they need, who has fur, no further need of material growth? And the answer is you bless them that this state should continue sustainably for their descendants. And that's, I think, a blessing that we can wish for all of us. So that's the first piece of, 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 of mythology of Tanit that I want, to, I want to put out there. The second is this, that climate in Tanit is communication. It runs throughout Talmud Tanit that when changes in the climate happen, which are potentially running, potentially worrying, this is a communication about our lives. It's a message for us to change. It's not a decree of, 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 of extinction. It's not a revelation, an uncovering of our inevitable future. It's telling us something that we need to know for our own good in order to change. The, uh, the source which I've, the next source which I've brought uh, is one of many in Tanit about how, in Tanit, the, way, the weather is talking to us, if you know how to hear what it's saying. So the next source, the Talmud ref returns to the topic of rain. This taste, sages taught in a brighter, the first rain, Yoreh, you know, remember we have in the, in the second paragraph of, uh, of, uh, of Shema, the early rain and the late rain, Yoreh Umakosh. The first rain is called by this name because it teaches people. Literally said, telling us the rain is teaching something. Here it's teaching people to plaster their roofs and to bring in their produce to attend to the needs of the field before more, more rain falls. The rain, the first rain is teaching us something very practical, but it's still teaching us something. The Markosh, the next rain, Rav, uh, Rav Nahilai Ba'idi said, it's the, what's the Malkosh? Why is it is called that? Because it circumcises, it circumcises Mal, the stubbornness Kashiachem of the Jewish people. In other words, it penetrates the hearts of the Jewish people so that when rain doesn't fall in its time, they turn to God in repentance. It's a, the first rain is to teach us something practical. The Malkosh is to teach us something spiritual, to teach us that there's a time with something going wrong and we need to turn back to God. And as Rashi spells it out, I can only find it in Hebrew, the rain is Davash Malkosh Yotanshi Yisrael. It circumcises the hardness, the obstinacy, and softens the obstinacy of Israel, who set in their ways, so that they turn back to God and they fast and they do tzedakah and they help people. 
and this 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 aspect of Tanit, which is really central to what it's all about, is is crystallized in in the opening of Rambam Maimonides' Laws of Taniot, where he says. It's a positive command from the Torah to cry out and to sound trumpets for all our troubles that come upon the community. As it stated, upon an enemy who attacks you and sounds trumpets, that's to say every matter that troubles you, such as famine, plague, locusts, what's similar to them, cry out and sound the trumpets. And then he says, and this is about tshuva. It's about repentance. For when a trouble comes and you yell about it and sound trumpets, and everyone will know it was because of your evil deeds and that it was bad done. And as it stated, it's your iniquities that have diverted, etc. And and understanding that it's it's coming to teach you something will cause you to 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 change and remove the trouble. So, where it's a, I think the second fundamental idea, an idea on the on the on the level of religious myth, is that climate is communication. It's coming to tell us about things we need to change about our lives and to do tshuva. What's the message of, 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 of climate change today? I would not presume to say. You know, I think it's actually different from countries to cultures. I think what, what people we need to change, what it's coming to tell us, is not, not something I think you can, you can prescribe universally. And I suggested yesterday that perhaps it's to restore our, our sense of connectedness to the sources of life and to the source of life. But Climate in climate, a climate crisis in Tanit is connected to one of the deepest and most central ideas of Judaism, tshuva, to change and to be and to do better. You know, as we said last week at the end of Neila and Yom Kippur, God, you do not desire the destruction of the world. As it says in God's name in Ezekiel, I do not desire the death of the wicked, for the wicked should come back from his way and live and therefore repent. Why should you die? And it's up to us. Freedom to change is given. That choice is always ours to make. And to bring that back to what we were talking yesterday, saying yesterday, that that freedom to change, that ability to change, Tanit spells out how that needs to happen as part of an individual and a communal response. It needs to happen as a part of uh, a spiritual, religious response uh, in terms of like, fasting and praying and tshuva and returning to, to connection to God. And it also needs to happen in the response of leadership and public policy. I spelled, spelled that out yesterday. It's, um, I think the recording is available for, for, for those who weren't here. And, and the third and final source of climate mythology in Tanit, which I want to bring out, is actually in response to, uh, to Rabbi Shoshana Friedman, Friedman's question, which she posed yesterday on, uh, on the, in the chats, uh, which is a great question, and I've been thinking about it. So, so, so Rabbi Friedman wrote this. She said, Yedidia, I've been thinking since Monday about the limits of Tani as a model for the current climate crisis in the following way. If rains didn't come for a given year in Eretz Israel, that's bad. But it's bad in the relatively short term for these people. There's still a good chance, for as far as we can tell, that rains would come for next year. The crisis we're in is not only in the moment, of, in the moment frightening or even deadly drought, but looking ahead to a century and further of hardship, including potential civilizational collapse that affects each of us and our families deeply in our lifetimes over the long haul into future generations. For this reason, I've usually thought, by Friedman says, of Horban Habayit, the destruction of the temple, and the entire way of life that went along with it as a place to look for Jewish mythology and responses to climate change. 
that's uh, that's a great point, and I I would respond to it respond to it thus. First of all, yes, there's a point taken about the scope and duration of the crisis. The climate crisis is not going to be over next year or the following year. It looks like we're in it for the long haul. But the next thing I I'd say is that actually it's not either or. It's not either Masechet Tanit or the paradigm of the Choban, the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. Because I'd say that this is actually one part of one continuous paradigm. Because the commemorations of the Choban and the fast that we, that we do in, in, in remembrance of it and Tisha B'Av, they are all a part of the focus of the fourth chapter of Tanit. And these signs of mourning on Tisha B'Av are the same as, and they are modeled on, and an extension of the fast that we see in the first chapter of Tanit, where the public fasts for, for rain not coming. In other words, what we do and what's become enshrined and embedded in Jewish tradition to mark the Chorban is modeled on the fasts which were, which were part, and, 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 and the rituals which were part of the response to climate crisis in, in ancient Israel. You know, the, if you if you look at what's how Tanit unfolds, I think what we see is this: that in the first chapter, we describe the system of public fasts when the rains don't come, which is supposed and we're supposed to fix whatever needs fixing in our individual communal lives, and life is supposed to go back to normal, and that's also in the part of the second chapter as well. The third chapter, which we looked at yesterday, when we have all these obscure miracle working rabbis who bring rain, when the official channels aren't working anymore is about I think a further stage of crisis when those public fasts of the first chapter are they're not working and we have to look for these these people the on the margins of the society of society the mavericks who nevertheless have this intense spiritual spiritual merit to look for salvation from them and fine but finally the fourth chapter of Tani is about when things have gone much further than that when year after year we haven't heeded the message and the worst has happened and the temple has been destroyed and the purpose of the fasts that follow that are actually turned inside out so to speak because the fasts are no longer primarily about having us change to avert the worst but to remind us year after year that at some point in our history the worst happened our national life was destroyed the temple was burned we were exiled and that the reality which we're in, which we've got so used to that we can treat it as the norm is actually not the norm. There was a better way that things were once. And by remembering that, we're supposed to hope and pray that one day they will be better again. So I want to say that Tanit actually binds together our modes of response to a climate crisis in the land of Israel with the most deepest and most constitutive myths about Jewish history and peoplehood that the response to a climate crisis became the paradigm for our response to a national catastrophe. It's interwoven with the fundamental Jewish myths of exile from the world that as we've known it, and as it should be, followed by a long period of dislocation and suffering, but with the enduring hope that in the end, there will be healing, there will be relief, and there will be return. Now, if we have more time, I would love to learn with you you know, the beautiful conclusion of Masachet Tani about Tuba'av and, and, and what Tuba'av is, uh, is all about. That after, after the, the, the tragedy and the disaster of Tisha B'Av, 
we have we have Tubaav, which is all about a healing and a restoration of the forces and the powers of uh, of life. You know, the, the the Talmud there gives says gives five no six answers to questions: What is Tubaav all about? You know, and one of them, perhaps the most haunting one, is that Tubaav is the day when the people in the desert stop dying. Right, that every year on Tisha B'Av, people lay down in their graves, uh, uh, and every year, and after Tisha B'Av, one forty of them would like be left dead in their graves, and the other, the rest would uh, would get up and carry on. And then on Tuba B'Av, in the final year in the desert, everybody went into their graves and nobody died, and it was a sign that life and hope were returning once again. And all of those, 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 those. Those ideas on the last page of Tanid about what is Tubav are all about that return of life and hope and healing. So none of us knows actually how bad this climate thing will be. None of us knows how it will end. And we have to look unflinchingly at what it is and what it could become. Yet I would insist that the deepest mythical structures of, 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 of Judaism into which we can we can in, within which we can grasp what's going on, hope is absolutely at the heart of them. That this is not a story in terms of the traditional Jewish paradigms that ends with us being consigned to the eternal fires of hell, but that we will eventually, and how long, however long it'll take, turn from that path and choose life. Whereby Jonathan Sachs talks a great deal about hope. Hope is at the heart of everything. In Judaism, and as he beautifully puts it, optimism is different from hope. You know, optimism is the belief that things will be okay, and uh, hope is the belief that together we can make things okay. So one, one final thought about this before I open it up to questions. Well, can we actually choose our mythology? I mean, I've said, I've said that of the mythic elements which I think have been forming a lot of people's thinking about climate change, are not helpful and that this would be a better one but can we actually choose our mythology on a pra pragmatic grounds that because this one has a has a better ending it's more likely to help us make it have a better ending i'm not sure you know, the, these things run very deep but i think that what one can choose is to uncover and embrace the myths that are embedded very very deeply in our own faith beliefs and traditions already no, that it's in Masechet Tanit, it's in the second paragraph of the Shema, it's in our daily prayers, it's deeply in the in the in the Tanakh, as I argued earlier in the week. You know that there's something, something unique and distinctive about the the weather in this place, the in the cradle of 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 Judaism, which Jews wherever they are are carrying with them and taking, taking forward. So we can choose to uncover what's already in our myths choose the framing story, which I argue is not fatalistic and determined, despairing, but empowers and offers hope, first of all, to ourselves. And with it, maybe we can also offer hope to others. So uh, I think I'll stop there. As I, as I said, I would uh, offer more time uh, for people to, to for discussion and comments and feedback. Uh, and now really very, very happy and excited to hear what everybody has to say. So, um, Yudidia, thank you for that. Um, this is a strong audience, and I'm going to encourage people, you can hover over your thing if you want to unmute yourself, and one of our staff will unmute you. 
or if you want to be called on, you can put something in the chat or ask the question on the chat. I want to, um, you, did you start with something that um, Dr. Jonathan Shorsh put into the chat a couple of minutes ago? He said, when is going to be our first communal climate change fast? And to the extent that you've called um, Masachet Tanit Masachet climate change, should there in fact be a Tanit climate change? That's a, that's a, that's a very good question. And, and first of all, I, one of this, this tradition actually hasn't, hasn't died out. Of, uh, of fasting in response to the threat of climate change. In that, you know, in, in recent years in, uh, here, in, uh, here in Israel, when there has been a prolonged drought, the, you know, the chief rabbiner, you know, which is, you know, it's an organization which has its problems, but the chief rabbiner has actually decreed public fasts. And there've been mass prayers at the, uh, at the Kotel uh, praying for rain. Uh, now, I don't know if they know much about climate change, but, but this, you know, this, this sort of enduring consciousness uh, that, you know, that we can do something about drought and the weather in this place has not died. Uh, I don't know how we, how we revive, uh, how we revive it. I don't know how we do that, but I do feel, and I think that's a great question you're asking, Jonathan. I do feel it's actually a shorter and a smaller step to 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 reviving it than we perhaps might think, because it's never it hasn't disappeared entirely. Thank you. Questions, thoughts, comments, questions. Got Marsh, Rabbi Marsha Plum. Uh, there you go. Got it, got it. Um, this has been fantastic. Thank you very much. Absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm curious about um, liturgy. I'm, I'm a liturgist and um, I'm just curious whether you think that liturgy can, can teach us and communicate with us in the same way around climate change or climate the issues that you've been raising in the same way that um, that Talmud speaks to you in that in and communicates to us in this way and the way t Torah reaches out to us. Can liturgy, in what way do you think liturgy can do the same or can it? Um, I think it can and uh, I think we've you know, we've lost a sense of how the liturgy does speak to us about this. Um, for example, you know, we have, we, you know, these, the Talmud in Tanit makes a great deal of, about the words that we add, Mashif HaRuach Gashem, to our prayers from, from tomorrow, from Shemini Atzeret uh, onwards. And, you know, there's pages, pages on this, and that 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 at this time in the year we return to our awareness and to our consciousness, this idea that we are dependent on 
on, on, on the weather and that we are fragile, vulnerable biological beings who need the rain to start now. And now, you know, now in my liturgical world, uh, you know, I, you know, in Shimon Esrei, when we say that to ourselves, we say that, you know, you can say that like that and not thinking about it. Uh, but I just feel that that must be so far from what the Talmudic rabbis were thinking about when they, when they, uh, when they devoted pages to, you know, to adding these four words to the liturgy. It must have been a much bigger deal than And so I really think it's, I, I really think it's, you know, it's for everybody in their communities to figure out how you actually return that into to, to, to prominence and to consciousness that we're saying something, you know, fundamental about our relationship to, to life, the sources of life, nature and, and, and climate when we're saying those words. You know, we all belong to very different liturgical communities and different, different denominations. And I, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't, I don't think, give people advice across those denominations about how you do that. But I think, you know, that the sheer importance that the rabbis gave to this means, you know, there needs to be a lot more to it than it is today, that there is today. I want to add one little thing about, about the radical empathy engendered by something right in front of our faces in Jewish tradition. I, of course, grew up in Manchester, England, where it rains 250 days a year. <laughs> There is no possibility if Jewish tradition had arisen in Manchester, England, that there would be anything like Masachet Tanit or anything like that prayer for rain. And the fact that you were obligated to say that in Manchester is absolutely a reminder to us that we're obligated to be aware not just of what happens in the land of Israel, but in Bangladesh, in Northern California, and around the world. And there is something very profound there that's so obvious to us that we, we miss it. Yeah, next question. Rabbi Fred Shell in the dub. Can I, can, I, can I just say that, can I just say that, don't assume this, I, I'm just scrolling through the chats and there's some amazing stuff there, and that don't assume that because you wrote it in a chat, I've sort of taken it in. So if you want to actually say it out, then please do. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. What, a, what an amazing group of people, and thank you, Yedidia and Hazon. Um, so one, one line of chat about climate change messaging, the importance of the social science, what will actually be received? Because sometimes our Ivy Tower or Rabbinic Tower can be, you know, we're all into this and what's, what's the experience on the user end and what will actually move people. What I wanted to address in light of the last thread is the question of uh, uh, the Gola versus Eretz Yisrael as a looming question. So Manchester is one example, but of course the archetype is Bavel, um, and the fact that we have this December 5th or whatever the shifting date is based on the solar, and the rabbis are arguing over two-week intervals as to what happens, and yet they're off by as much as four weeks or more on the solar, which is the agricultural calendar. So how we reconcile our own myths with the sort of scientific exactitude um, and, and find a way that speaks across the chasm of Israel and Gola, um, but that also speaks across the chasm of myth and science. Hmm. That's a great point, thank you. Yeah. Um, 
I th I'll take that as a point and, a, and rather than a question. And uh, and um, yeah, very happy to hear from anybody else. Jonathan Wolf. Thank you, Yashakot, everyone. Modim Simcha. I put on the chat a response to Jonathan Shorsh. Uh, he and his wife and kids and my son and I were on a kosher eco tour of Costa Rica right after Hanukkah a dozen years ago. But I think it's a wonderful idea to have a, a, a public communal fast in lines of the theology of Tanit. And it seems to me it could be a very mediagenic, well photographed and well covered gathering, like what Chazon did for Earth Day, like what we do every year at the Isaiah Wall for Tisha B'Av. We could have gatherings all over North America for Mincha with Nigunim, with Talitot, with Shofar, and we would get a lot of coverage about Jewish response and theological reaction and, and, and activism toward climate. I think that's an amazing idea, and I think you should do it. Thank you. Further questions or comments? And, I, and, and you hover or, or uh, if I can't see you, or put something in the chat. Um. I want to say a huge thank you, Yadija, for taking my question. And I would, one point I want to make is I'm guessing I'm not the only one wait, who um, would love to take a class with you on these texts, not just a four session class, but to really dive in. I teach at Hebrew College um, and can use these texts to teach rabbinical students, but obviously I really need to learn them first. So I'm just going to put out a huge like a request for ongoing learning where there would be Hebrew to work in between and we can get to know uh, Ta'ani with you. Um, I, I'd absolutely love to do that. Uh, amazing. You know, one of the things which is, you know, one of the blessings, silver linings of this thing is that we, this COVID thing is that we can actually do, do that kind of thing. So, yeah. so love to do that. Great. I, I'm sure I don't, I don't speak only for myself when I say I'd be quite willing to compensate you for your time. I mean, this is excellent and I want to, I want to learn the sources. Um, and the other comment I just want to make is around the balance um, in terms of public image of the Jewish community on activism and prayer. And I've been just, was just finished reading um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And I think his definition of activist is really important. And I just want to put it out there in this conversation that an activist is someone who shifts power or policies. And it's just important for us to remember that our lit liturgy is, is powerful, but it's not activism in the political sense and that we can use it to spur our own activism, but I don't want us to conflate the two. Mm, thank you. And a huge thank you to you for this, for this course. Yes, and a shout out on that for one of two sessions we've got at one o'clock, which is gonna be on federal food, food and farm policy. And I'm gonna ask Leanna to put those links into the chat. Yes, thoughts, comments, or questions? I just can, am I unmuted? Yeah. Yes, you are. Okay. No, I just, uh, Jonathan Shorsh has put up a couple times, and I mentioned also um, this ongoing, a couple times a month on Fridays, Jonathan hosts uh, different guests coming and having conversations about these kinds of issues, and it's a great way for us to continue to be in conversation. So I think Jonathan posted um, in the chat, but I just really wanted to encourage people and Nina Cardin will be speaking, I think, a week from Friday. Yes. Where? 
Thank you. It's in the chat. Jonathan, uh, check out Green Sabbath Project, the, the listings in the chat. Thank you. I'm also going to say, by the way, um, uh, and, and both Rabbi Nina Beth Cardin and Jeremy Benstein were partly behind this, but we're going to be doing a weekly Devar Torah this year on the topic of Shnat Shemitah, the Shemitah year, in relationship to the Pasha. And there are already about 14 or 15 people who've slotted in to do that, but anybody here who wants to do one, be in touch with Hannah Henza. Yeah. Thoughts, comments, or questions? And I'm now blinded as well. <laughs> so just demute yourself if you can, or wave vigorously, or put something into the uh, uh, into the uh, chat. I I really want to thank you for bringing energy into this, and also to really stress and agree with you that it's so important to foster hopefulness and and that possibility that at least in my community, what's been very clear is that so many people are simply paralyzed by despair and so they don't act. And that's all. So mm. it's really important, mm. however we can do it. And bringing in Jewish teachings are also, mm. we should thank be doing you. that all the time. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Michael. Thank you, and the paralysis of despair then fuels this anti-climate denial kind of mentality because we cannot bear to face a reality and therefore we have to practice evasion. And I think this is building itself into the political framework of this country. Yeah. I, th I think that's very true. I think that, that that's a that is certainly part of what's behind climate change denial. That the the consequences of, of of facing up to this be too difficult. That it's so that it's just easier not to. That's there's a lot in that. Going to take one last question or comment. I think I've got Seth Goldstein. Oh sure, thank you. Um, yeah, I put it up in the chat. I think one of the things I've been wrestling with around climate change is, and reflecting on it and approaches is um, how much it's still, it's very human focused. And I guess, you know, I, I guess one of the things I, I, I'm thinking about or have been, and, you know, it sort of reminded me with this, the story about that you raised about the man blessing the tree and how he was blessing the tree really just in all the ways that the tree was useful to the human right, in terms of the fruit and the shade and the water and how the human used the tree and that was the blessing. Like, can you continue to be useful to humanity? And so I'm just wondering in terms of balancing mythologies as you raise the sort of thinking about it, the environment as something that is useful to us or that we use versus the environment for its own sake or the world for its own sake. You know, one of the, 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 the mythologies I've been wrestling with is the story of creation which proves or which teaches in a way that the, the earth can it exist without us, you know? And so, um, so anyway, that's just sort of where I've been wrestling and just wanted to raise that and, and hear thoughts around that. So thank you for taking my question. Indeed, yeah, a couple of last words from you. And then I want to say a couple of things to contextualize this and playing it forwards. Um, yeah, okay. 
Um, well, uh, I think that there is an element in uh, Jewish tradition which uh, privileges the human. But as I said earlier in the week, privileges us in the sense that we have these capacities of speech and reflection and consciousness and willed action to act for the benefit of, of all of, uh, of creation. And I said, I accept what you say about the, uh, about that, uh, that story that it's framed in terms of what we can do. But I think today, you know, we have a, you know, a profounder sense, as I said yesterday, of our interconnectedness with everything that we know that we can't just see the natural world as, as there for our, for our use, because if we don't see it as having value in its own life, in its own right, it won't be there for our use. And, and our, you know, our existence will be, uh, will be, will be threatened. So, so yes, I think actually, I think I agree with you. You know, we, we do have to widen our sense of, of our interconnectedness with all of nature and, and our appreciation that, you know, a lot of it is there for reasons that we just don't understand. And it's not, it's not all about us. So it's a huge, huge subject that you just raised. And those are some, you know, some, some slight reflections on it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank yeah. you. So just a couple of words, stepping back and stepping forwards to frame and contextualize this. Um, because in one sense, a, a deep aspect of what Rabbi Sinclair is talking about is in a sense leverage. Each one of us is who, is who we is, is who we are, um, and is here because of all the influences on us, including Jewish tradition, our parents, our teachers, and the wider world. And in that context, Jewish thought, Jewish teaching, and Jewish tradition is really important. But what is important are what the leverage points are playing it forwards and where it is that we're trying to get to. And I think that the, the period of COVID has been a further period for Chazam, although I think truthfully for many of us, to re, as it were, critique ourselves, to retry and clarify what is the most important thing that we can, could, or should be doing, which is ultimately the Reb Zusha question. It implies to each of us as individuals, it applies to our organizations, and arguably it applies to the Jewish people in relationship to the Catholic community, the Muslim community, native peoples, and so on. But I think that we've started to understand that the world needs to make radical changes in the next 10 years because what happens in the next 10 years won't so much influence those 10 years, but it'll massively influence the remainder of this century. And our shared task is to change the nature of organized Jewish life so that by September of 2029, if you step into any Jewish institution, it will be absolutely apparent that to be Jewish is necessarily to work for a more sustainable world for everybody. That needs us to leverage this year's Tu B'Shvat which will be eight days after the new presidential inauguration. Everybody here is encouraged and invited to organize an event in your community, not just fruit and nuts, not just for kids, raising these questions, asking how we should be using the Shemitah as a Jewish community to plan for seven year plans for sustainable change across all of our Jewish institutions. 
as an organization, we want to help to organize, catalyze, connect those conversations. Sue Salinger, in one of the earlier sessions today, said something about needing a unified plan and a huge gathering around these issues. And it's interesting, I haven't had the chance to close the loop with her, but I'm not sure it's a unified plan or a huge gathering. I think it's actually Shivim Panim Torah. It's 70 faces of the Torah. Different communities, different people, different passions, multiple different ways to address the challenge. And yet what we all need to do is we need to do it. Yudhidya essentially pulled out of Ta'ani the need for us to have a spiritual response from Jewish tradition, an individual response, and a communal and organizational response. There are lots of people in the Jewish world who care about one of those things, or perhaps two of them, but the notion that Jewish tradition speaks to all three of them is significant. For Chazon, we're going to argue that every person should commit to a Brit Chazon, a commitment to three things. Firstly, to make some further change in our own behavior. Precisely, as Yudidi said, not because in and of itself it will change anything, but because it's what we need to do to look in the mirror to ourselves and to have standing to say anything to anybody else. Secondly, to give time and money to organizations who are doing this work. And thirdly, to amplify our voice in public space, in the institutions in which we have voices and leadership. And that then leads on to those institutions joining the Fazan Seal of Sustainability or anything equivalent in actually committing multi-year to sustainable change. So thank you so, so much for joining us. There'll be lots of follow-up, including the possibility of doing a learning series on Ta'anit. I learned Mishnah Ta'anit 25 years ago and loved it. I started learning the Gemara a year ago with a Chavrita in Jerusalem. We're only halfway through, so I love it. Um, and for now, we're adjourned. There are two sessions at one o'clock, and we hope to see you. Yudidia and everybody, thank you so much.